reading of today's gospel lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Lynn, thank you so much for reading our lesson, and grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. Uh, it is so good to be in worship with you today. You will be happy to know that I have the right power pack this morning, so hearing should not be an issue, although I was told by a group that was in the chapel last week at 11 that while you could not hear, they heard the sermon again. So that's a, uh, we're so grateful. Uh, thank you, Joy Sound. Thank you to all of our musicians, Ani, for leading us, Dr. Driver, for reading our scripture. We're continuing our series that we started three weeks ago. We're on the tail end. Next week, we'll finish uh, this series on core values on Labor Day weekend with the final core value. We've been talking about the fact that core values are internal code or internal belief and principle that have a way of guiding us personally and collectively, communally as well. They are, I think, the compass or, or, or the guardrails that have a way of shaping our culture and promoting a sense of cohesion, of unity and collaboration, cooperation among our people. In the last few weeks, we've been examining the core values of specific businesses and corporations to the point now that many of you are sending me your own company's core values, and so I'm not Googling anymore for those. I have yours now, and I wanna share a couple of them with you. Uh, one of our members, Aaron Martin, shared with me the core values of Petra, uh, which is a coaching firm in Franklin. They have seven, so stay with me. The first is this, there is no try, only do. Um, sounds a little like Yoda to me, Star Wars. Number two, I've got your back no matter what. Number three, say please and thank you and mean it. Number four, everything is an experience every time you do it. Number five, see around the curves, anticipate needs and pre-fill them. Number six, be curious, ask why and seek to improve. 
And number seven, my favorite, be a Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Be an iron man with a squishy heart. I love that. Diane Glass, who's with us today, also shared with me from her firm, a diagnostic firm called Craft Body Scan, uh, these six core values, exhibit positive energy, work with care and compassion, take personal responsibility, do the right thing, win together, and have fun. I found a few other core values when I was Googling that I would not recommend to you, and I will not name the company. Here's one. We innovate, collaborate, vacillate, procrastinate, pontificate, deliberate, guesstimate, and under-deliver to our clientele. <laughs> At least they're honest. Here's one of my favorites. We put the W in quality. <laughs> or finally, we are experts in claiming to be experts. Core values. We, we have five at BUMC, we have reviewed the first three. We're Christ-centered, number one. Ministry of all believers, number two. Teachability, number three. And this morning, I wanna think with you for just a few minutes about the core value of risk-taking. Contrary to popular thought, the Christian faith is not primarily an eternal life insurance policy that minimizes risk. It is an alternative way of living that actually encourages risk. One of my favorite philosophers, the Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard said it like this, there can be no faith without risk. I want to thank our Stephen ministers today because of the risk that you all are taking in going through 50 hours of training, in trusting God with your gifts and your willingness to help us to shoulder our pain and grief. But, but I think conversely, not only are the Stephen ministers taking a risk, but when you ask for a Stephen minister, particularly in Williamson County, that's risky too. The very idea that I might be willing to share my struggles, my pain, my grief with somebody I don't know is a little bit risky. But I can tell you it's worth the risk. I don't know why it is, but sometimes the older I get and as we age, we sometimes become risk averse. That we can become so afraid of losing that we refuse to take a chance on someone or something. When I think about risk averse, I think automatically of Matthew 25. I think of the parable of the talents, where a CEO, a wealthy boss, entrusts to his three servants, talents, large sums of capital, which they are to invest while he's on a business trip to New York City or something like that. To one, he gives five talents, to another two, and to still another one. And then he goes his way. When he returns, he settles the accounts. He calls his employees to account for their business. The five and two talent men have invested well. In fact, they have doubled their assets. And they operate by this motto, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And both receive commendation from the master and they're promoted. 
In fact, the job, when you do a job well, what do you get? More work. That's why sometimes we opt for mediocrity. I don't want any more work. But the one talent man, he plays it safe. In fact, the scripture says he buries his gift and buries it because he's afraid. And when the boss calls him to account, what does he do? He fires him right on the spot and he takes the talent away from him. Why? Because he tried and failed? No, because he forfeited, because he did nothing. He operated by this motto, nothing ventured, nothing lost. But the moral to this story and the motto of the kingdom is, nothing ventured, everything lost. I think it was Leo uh, Biscaglia, professor at University of Southern Cal and a great American author who was once known as Dr. Love because of his unconditional love once said, the greatest hazard in life is to do nothing. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who said, everybody ought to do one thing every day that scares you. And the truth of the matter is that sometimes following Jesus is risky business. In fact, you see it, Lynn, in the scripture that you read for us, Matthew 14. Let me set the stage. It is immediately after the miracle where Jesus fed the multitude with the fish and loaves, with a little boy's lunch. And immediately after that miracle, Jesus sends his disciples, he commands them to go to the other side of the sea. And so they're moving from east to west. Meanwhile, Jesus hangs around and dismisses the crowd and then finds a place of prayer. During the voyage, during the sailing trip, the disciples are on their way, a storm blows up. And if you've ever been to Galilee, some of you have been, we've traveled together, you know that that area around the Galilean lake, the topography of that region makes it vulnerable for sudden storms. The lake, the Lake of Galilee, seven miles wide, is 680 feet below sea level. And so the hills on the east bank ascend to 2,000 feet above sea level so that when the cool, dry air from the east clashes with the warm, humid air in the west, the result is electricity. It's chaos. And on their way, this is what the scripture says, verse 24. The boat, now far from the land, was battered, buffeted by the waves, and the wind was against them. At this point, when Matthew is writing his gospel, it's 70, maybe 80 AD, second, third generation of Christianity. And I think verse 24 is not only a description of the weather report, He's describing the experience of the culture of the early church in which they found themselves in. They too were in choppy waters, as often we are. They're paddling against the current, they're running against the wind, and it feels as though they're getting nowhere fast. And most troubling of all, I think, is the fact that these disciples were simply following Jesus' command, his orders. 
And so apparently we begin to see that our obedience to Jesus does not circumvent the storm. In fact, sometimes we're in the teeth of it. You know the name Brene Brown has a new book out called Atlas of the Heart in which she discusses 87 different emotions in human life. In her chapter on fear, she takes a page from one of my favorite philosophers whose name is Willy Wonka. As the golden ticket holders are touring the chocolate factory, Wonka, you remember at one point, puts everybody in a boat and they're sailing through this tunnel through troubled waters and he recites this very disturbing poem. There is no earthly way of knowing which direction we're going. There's no knowing where we're rowing or which way the river's flowing. Is it raining? Is it snowing? Is a hurricane a blowing? Not a speck of light is showing, so the danger must be growing. Are the fires of hell a-glowing? Is the grizzly reaper mowing? Yes, the danger must be growing, for the rowers keep on rowing, and they're certainly not showing any signs that they are slowing. You remember that? Gene Wilder, who married, Ro uh, what was her name? Gilda Radner? Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana? <laughs> Sometimes that's the way it feels in a storm. It's no accident that the earliest symbol of the church was a boat. Did you know that? A storm-tossed boat, and the mast was a cross. Three centuries later, when we began to build sanctuaries and basilicas, they constructed them, they built them in the shape of a boat. In fact, the word nave, which is the central part of the chancel, by the way, comes from the word novice, which means ship, from which we derive the words navy, nautilus, and fellowship. And all of that is traceable to this story. It's the fourth hour of the night, ironically, about the same time that Mary and the women came to a tomb on a Sunday morning. It's the fourth hour of the night, Maybe three o'clock, between three and six, it's the bewitching hour. And they look out and Jesus is walking towards them, not in the water, but on it. Now at that point, you can imagine their reaction. You would have reacted the same. They're terrified and they think he's an apparition. It's a ghost, we're hallucinating. And they cry out in fear. I love, I love the Orthodox Jewish Bible. It says that these fishermen were actually screaming with fear. And Jesus speaks, take heart, it is I. You don't have to be afraid. And Peter responds, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, come on. And Peter accepts the challenge. He gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. Now this is fascinating because if you go back to Exodus, Moses led the people through the water on a dry path. Joshua, when he crossed over into Canaan, led the people through the Jordan. He walked through the water, but Jesus is walking on the water. 
Now you must know that the sea was considered the symbol of chaos, primeval chaos. And Jesus and even Peter for a moment walking on the water. There's a book out many of you have read by John Ortberg. It's a bestseller. It's called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Gotta Get Out of the Boat. I love the title. It's about risk. Says Ortberg, and I quote, the kind of assignments that God gives in the scripture are always God-sized. They're often beyond what we can do because God wants to demonstrate his nature, his strength, his provision and kindness to his people and to a watching world. And sometimes this is the only way the world will come to know him. The rest of the book, Ortberg goes on to interpret the text, Matthew 14, as we often do, that Peter was able to walk on the water because of his focus on Jesus. But when he took his focus off of Jesus and put it on the winds and the waves, he sank like a lead balloon. The moral is when we pay attention to the storm more than Jesus, it doesn't end well and we get very wet. It's good exegesis. But there's more to it. I want to suggest to you that Peter's request to Jesus to come out on that water betrays a lack of faith in Peter. You say, where are you getting this? Jesus had just said to them in the midst of the storm, it's me, don't be afraid. And Peter responds with the conjunction, if it's you, bid me come. It's a conditional conjunction that reminds me of another conversation that Jesus once had in the wilderness with Satan when Satan said to him, if you are the son of God, prove it. Turn these stones into bread. What was the devil doing? He's putting Jesus to the test. And I think maybe that Peter also was putting Jesus to the test. He sounds, to me anyway, more like an enemy than a friend at that moment. And later in Matthew 16, Jesus would refer to Peter as Satan because his thoughts were not Jesus's thoughts. So maybe, just maybe, in this scene, at this moment, a more faithful response would have been to stay in the boat. If in fact the text says, as the text says, Jesus is walking towards them, then why abandon ship? And yet even when Peter was sinking, instinctively he knew what to do. He cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And immediately, do you notice in the text that Lynn, there's three times that word is used, immediately, eutheos. It means at once. It means you don't have to ask twice. It means straight away. Jesus reaches and picks him up by the hand and watch what he does. Verse 32, he lifts Peter out of the storm, out of the waves, and puts him back in the boat. 
He places him back into the fellowship. And then he gets in with them. And then the wind ceases. Discipleship doesn't circumvent the storms. But Jesus will never forsake the vessel of his followers, even when our faith is weak. And hey, you know, we're all a mixed bag of faith and doubt. So I might suggest that sometimes the mistake is leaving the boat, getting out of the ship. Somebody once asked a desert father, whose name was Abba Anthony, fourth century, Egyptian monk, Father, what must one do to please God? The first two pieces of advice he gave were expected. Always be aware of God's presence and always trust Jesus' command. But the third piece of counsel was a little surprising. He said, wherever you find yourself, do not easily leave. Wherever you find yourself, do not easily leave. What does that mean? It means that community is hard to find. It means that authentic fellowship is hard to come by. And sometimes leaving often looks more attractive in the short run, but over the long haul, leaving has a tendency to produce people who live in the habit of giving up. Sometimes we stay in the boat. Having said that, however, let me also say this. The boat is not a place of permanent residence. The ship is not an abode, it's a vehicle. It helps us to get through one storm and another, and it will get us from one shore to the other. I want you to notice at the conclusion of the story, we didn't read this part, that when Peter is placed in the boat, Jesus gets in with him, they arrive at the western shore, they dock the boat in Gennesaret, and then they get out of the boat and begin to minister to a needy crowd. All that to say the purpose of this fellowship is not just to give you a safe space, it's to transport you to some needy shore where you can risk yourself by offering hope and healing and salvation to somebody else. Last word. I got a letter a few weeks ago from my first district superintendent who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. His name is Bill McCoy. He said in the letter that he listens sometimes on Sundays. He enjoys the choir, didn't say much about the preaching. But he did say that Martha and I still pray for you. They're in their 80s and they're watching today. I called him after I got the letter and he told me a story that I don't remember hearing. He said it was the fall of 1982. I was a district superintendent in the Gainesville district. This is about 50 miles north of Atlanta in the North Georgia Conference. He said, we had a cabinet one fall afternoon and the bishop, a cabinet meeting, and the bishop told us that he had heard from a young 22-year-old seminary student at Emory 
that he would like to find a place to serve. And he wrote the name, the bishop wrote the name and telephone number of the student on a note card. And just before they took a break, Bishop McDavid said, I'm gonna lay this card on the table in front of me and we're gonna take a break and if anybody wants it, you can take it. And Bill McCoy said, when we took the break, I decided to pick up the card and take a chance. And you were that chance. It was your name on the card, he said to me. I had a little country church. They didn't need much of a pastor and you seemed to fit that profile. <laughs> and we met for lunch six weeks later. And the first of the year I became a pastor of that little church, 90 members, had 40 on Sunday. And they about made a pastor out of me. They didn't know at first, at 22, if I was the acolyte or the preacher. <laughs> I'd never heard that story. And for, for just a minute, I, I was overwhelmed by the providence of God. If he doesn't pick up that card, I don't go to Gainesville. I, I don't become a pastor. I don't take a church, maybe any church. If he doesn't pick up that card, I don't met, meet Sherry Huffman and we don't date and we don't marry and we don't have children. Noonan, Georgia, First Methodist, doesn't have a pastor named Andrew. And Clarksville, Georgia has one less therapist named Haley. And I'm pretty certain I surely wouldn't be here. It's amazing that the path of one life can take a turn when one person takes a chance. That's so God. That's just like Jesus, who takes risks on mixed bags like me and you and then lifts us up and puts us in the ship and gets in with us and takes us to places unknown to us where we have the distinct privilege of risking ourselves in love for somebody else, for Christ's sake. And I don't have to tell you but it is so worth the risk. Thanks be to God.